Pins and Needles, Chapter 6, Valencia, Portugal. As it worked out, Mark need not have worried about his lack of an alarm. It seemed to him that he had only fallen asleep when he was awakened by the early morning peregrinos, noisily readying their backpacks. Sorry, did I wake you? whispered the man who had slept in the bunk below him as he rolled his sleeping bag into a tight, neat ball. No, that's fine, said Mark, glancing at his watch and finding that he had ten minutes to get himself up and out if he were to obey Shay's instructions. How come everyone's up so early? You must be new on the Camino then, stated the man, strapping the sleeping bag under his backpack. You want to get as much of your walking done as possible before the sun comes up, as well as that you don't want to arrive after everyone else and find the beds all gone in the next place. Oh, said Mark, that makes sense. The man hoisted his bag onto his shoulders and turned to leave. Are you going to Porino today or on as far as Redondela? I'm not actually sure, replied Mark. Smart move. See how the feet hold out first, said the man. Well, you can't go wrong. Just follow the arrows. He headed for the door. Buen camino. Thanks. Uh, uh, Buen camino, replied Mark, feeling somewhat out of his depth. It was 5.45am as instructed when he left the albergue, still yawning, but feeling a growing sense of excitement at the prospect of the adventure ahead. It was dark, apart from the patches of orange glow around the streetlights and a ghostly silver hue from the full moon when flitting clouds didn't obscure it. It was, therefore, with some difficulty that he located the first of the yellow arrows that marked the way. It led him across the road and into a field where a well-trodden dirt track took him up a slope and into what appeared to be a medieval-walled village fortress. He might easily have got hopelessly lost at that point, but for the presence of other peregrinos who, well accustomed to locating the yellow arrows that marked the way, found them by using their mobile phones or small pocket torches to shed light. Mark exchanged some pleasantries with the others, but they seemed anxious to press on, and he soon found himself left behind. He trudged through a village of old but well-preserved shops and houses, all contained within the fortress walls. Nothing was open, and the thought of breakfast preoccupied him. On the far side of the village he bemoaned the lack of a torch or the glow from a mobile phone when the uneven path ran through a twisting long pitch-black tunnel in the old walls. Finally he emerged from the fortress and descended some broad steps towards the roadway, his backpack jerking uncomfortably on his shoulders at every downward step. A short walk brought him to the metalwork bridge stretching across the mighty river Mino. A brief flash split the darkness ahead. It was caused by a cyclist who had stopped to take a photograph of a large sign that faced away from Mark as he approached. It proved to contain one word. Portugal. Beyond this point, then, he was entering Spain. Having walked for all of twenty minutes, he knew it was vaguely ridiculous, but he couldn't help feeling a sense of accomplishment. He decided to take a rare selfie with the sign, but remembered his lack of a phone and cursed to himself instead. He examined the bridge. Pedestrian walkways lay to either side and the road for vehicular traffic ran through the centre. He had a moment of difficulty deciding which of the two footpaths to take as, in the gloom, he couldn't locate any markers to tell him. However, the sky seemed a little less black to what he gauged was the east, so he tentatively chose that side. He was rewarded immediately with a yellow arrow bright against the lifeless cold grey metalwork. He knew the instructions by heart. At the third column of the bridge over the Mino, you will find a bag. Further information there.
Peering over the railing of the bridge, he could see the huge columns upon which the structure rested. The third one was approximately at the middle point of the river, a vast expanse of water shimmering grey in the pre-dawn light. At the midway section, Mark was delighted to see a symbol on the ground before him. It showed a line with a footprint painted with the Portuguese flag colours on one side and a similar footprint branded with the Spanish colours on the other. This, then, was the border. When he reached the spot where the third column rose, Mark glanced back along the walkway to ensure that he was alone and then peered once more over the railing. A small crescent-shaped edge of the supporting column protruded below him, but there was no sign of a bag. Turning, Mark noticed that the huge steel girders shot upward from the column to support the trellised structure above. He examined the base of this superstructure and saw immediately a gap between it and the platform upon which he was standing. Checking again that he was alone, he took off his backpack, knelt and examined his find. There were in fact three holes of varying size created by the shapes of the metal girders. He reached into the first and groped about. Nothing. In the second, however, his hand encountered a plastic bag and his heart jumped with a sudden childish excitement. Retrieving it, he examined the contents. There was a note, a packet of blue chalk and a cheap, old-fashioned mobile phone complete with charger. He examined it doubtfully for a moment. It would manage a little more than text messages and phone calls, although it did, he noted, have an alarm function. He turned his attention to the note, recognising the handwriting from the letter he had received back in England. It read, Your overall mission is to walk the Camino to the Cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. Now, buy bread for breakfast in the small panaderia at the bottom of the hill on the road past the Cathedral in Tui but don't eat it. Carry it with you as you walk on to the next stop, Porino, where you will stay tonight in the albergue. You will receive further instructions by text on the phone provided as you walk, so keep it charged up. Each time you complete a task, write your name and the exact time with the chalk so I can check your progress. You will never know when I am nearby watching. Well done, you've completed your first task, so start by writing your name and the exact time now. Shay. To Mark, it all seemed rather elaborate. He was also more than a little dismayed about the idea of buying bread and carrying it along without breakfasting on it. He had come this far, though, he reflected, so he owed it to himself to give it a try. Taking a stick of blue chalk from the packet, he consulted the phone for the correct time and verified it with his wristwatch. There was a discrepancy of a few minutes. Reasoning that the phone was taking its time from the cellular network, he decided to go with that. He wrote it down beside his name on the upright metal girder at the base of which the package had been concealed. He was just putting the chalk back into the packet when two figures appeared on the bridge behind him. He slipped the phone and the chalk into the leg pocket of his combat shorts and stuffed the empty bag and rope into one of his backpack's outer pockets as he discreetly observed the new arrivals. It was a young couple. Their backpacks marked them as peregrinos. It struck Mark that he could now apply that label to himself. The young man was several strides ahead of the young woman. He was wearing a vest top that revealed the type of shoulders and chest that are the result of long hours in the gym. When he saw Mark, he slowed down and let his companion catch up. Despite the tied-back hair, hat and hiking clothes, it was obvious that she was stunningly beautiful. As the young man drew close, Mark felt himself the subject of an appraising scrutiny. Mark recognised the familiar look of disgust as he was dismissed as posing no threat. 
The man picked up his pace again, so the young woman was alone once more as she passed. His position, kneeling beside the backpack, seemed appropriate to Mark in the presence of such aesthetic royalty, and he looked down abashed, watching her feet as she drew level. The feet slowed. Buen camino. Mark looked up and found himself faced with a warm smile. Buen camino, he returned, flushing red with embarrassment. She walked on in the wake of her boyfriend. Mark got clumsily to his feet and hoisted his backpack into place. As he set off after the couple, he wondered, not for the first time, why lovely women always seemed to choose assholes. At first he laboured gamely after the pair, but they soon reached the far side of the bridge and disappeared around the corner. When he finally stepped off the bridge and onto the footpath, they were nowhere in sight. A similar sign to the one on the Portuguese side of the river told him he was now in Spain. Another blue and yellow sign proclaimed in bold letters, Camino de Santiago. Above the writing was the now familiar symbol of the shell. Some time later, Mark was walking along the street, faithfully following the arrows, when a thought struck him. Here in Spain, the clocks went forward an hour. Should he then have written Spanish time on his blue chalked message? He had, after all, passed the graphic on the ground that signified his crossing from one country into the next. Stopping to look back to where the bridge was already now quite a distance behind, he made up his mind. The sign could stay written in Portuguese time. There was no way he was walking all the way back to change it now. He came to a petrol station on a corner, and the arrows indicated that he should turn right. This led him to a path that once more ran close to the river. As he reached the water, the sun suddenly broke out from behind a hill on the far bank, greeted by a bewildering chorus of birds and flooding the landscape with a golden glow. He stopped, enthralled by the view for a moment, but the weight of the backpack and the thought of food soon drove him on. Although his route seemed to skirt the main road, he could hear the town beginning to waken. Carefully following the frequent yellow arrows, he eventually came to the foot of the hill that had been visible since the bridge and began the gruelling, winding ascent along the narrow streets to the cathedral. Despite frequent stops, he was almost physically ill when he finally staggered into the square in front of the huge old church. There he saw the couple from the bridge. The young man had taken his top off and was rubbing sun cream over his torso. The young woman was taking photographs of the cathedral. Mark, soaked in sweat and panting, hurried, unnoticed, past the square and around the first corner until he found himself out of sight. For a while he lost track of the yellow arrows and was afraid he'd have to retrace his steps, but then, as he descended a street past an elaborate church building, he found himself back on the marked way. He was agonising over the possibility that he had passed the panaderia while he was momentarily lost and that he would have to climb back up the hill when he came across it. The aroma of freshly baked bread forewarned him before the shop itself came into sight and set his mouth watering. He put down his backpack and entered. There were two elderly women in the shop, sporadically visible in the back room as they busily laid bread onto battered but sturdy metal racks that looked as ancient as themselves. Eventually, one caught sight of him and came out to the shop counter. There were three types of loaf on offer and she smiled patiently as he tried to tell her which one he wanted by speaking slowly in simple English and pointing vigorously. The woman set him on his way with his carefully wrapped parcel and a buen camino. He marched on, sweating under the increasing heat of the day. After a while, he left the buildings behind and found himself walking on a level track through farmland. Away from the town, a welcome breeze made the sun more bearable, and he became aware of a chorus of birds chirping merrily in the undergrowth. Mark was distracted, however. 
The paper packaging around the parcel in his hand failed miserably to mask the aroma of soft, fresh bread. When he came to a man-made pool of water at the side of a track, he guessed that it was a place where local women had come to wash clothes in the days before laundrettes and washing machines, he stopped to put the bread into his backpack and out of temptation. He screwed the cap off a plastic bottle of water he had brought with him from the albergue and took a long welcome swig. With the bread packed away and refreshed by the water, he looked around him in a more appreciative frame of mind. With the smell of the bread replaced by the fresh scent of flowers and foliage, he was suddenly struck with a great sense of well-being. For the first time that he could remember, he felt at harmony with nature and completely detached from the addiction of the World Wide Web. In fact, he thought, it was quite possible that mobile phones would struggle to find a signal in this remote spot. That thought prompted him to check the phone that had come in the package on the bridge. Two words were written on the small screen. Message received. He fumbled with the unfamiliar archaic keypad for a few moments before figuring out how to open the text message. After Tui in the forest, after the long stretch of main road, you will find the cross where Santelmo fell with fever. There you will leave the bread and walk on. It is an important test of your willpower. Remember to leave your name and the time you've completed this task. Shay. Mark felt like crying. Bastard! There was a flutter of wings and a magpie landed at the edge of the pond. It regarded him for a while with its beady yellow eyes. Then it opened its beak and started cackling at him. What was that old children's rhyme about magpies? One for sorrow, two for joy. Mark looked around to see if there was a second magpie anywhere in sight. There wasn't. Fuck off! he yelled vehemently, and it did, squawking mockingly as it fled over the fields. Mark watched until it was a small black dot in the now blue sky, but his thoughts were elsewhere. Who was he fooling? Adelina would arrive in a few weeks' time, and even if he followed the whims of this Shea lunatic, the best that he could realistically hope for was to be extremely fat instead of obese by then. There was no way he was going to resemble the athletic fiction of himself in his doctored Facebook profile picture. There was nothing sustainable nor healthy about starving himself. He began to open the backpack to remove the bread, but his fingers trembled as he wrestled with the strap. Less haste, more speed. He paused and drew a deep breath. The strap clicked open easily at his next attempt, but the moment had passed. He refastened the buckle slowly and hoisted the backpack into place. He'd hold out until this Santelmo cross place ahead, and then he did. He had four identical light sport shirts for the walk. Each had a pocket to one side of the chest, and into this he put the mobile phone. Now at least, he'd have a chance of hearing the next message. He sighed and pushed on. Valença, Portugal Frade Chico embraced the priest and planted the customary double kiss on his cheeks. We will miss you, Father Bellucci, he said with genuine warmth. Thank you for such a wonderful week, said the latter. They beamed at each other for a moment and then the Frade sighed. You have some walking to do. He went back to the car, opened the trunk and hoisted the priest's backpack out. Let me help you to get this on, he said. Father de Lucci stood waving as the monk pulled away with a honk of the horn and a squeal of tyres. Then, staggering slightly under the unaccustomed weight of his bag, he made his way ponderously to the bridge. 
The sun was beginning its climb on the right-hand side, and across the great stretch of water he could see a hilltop town, crowned with what looked like a castle. There were pedestrian walkways on either side of the bridge. He chose the side with the view and set off across the river that separated him from Spain and his one-week hike to Santiago. It was then that he saw his first yellow arrow, crudely painted on the metalwork. His heart gave a little leap of excitement. After all the preparation and travelling, he was now officially on the Camino de Santiago. He glanced at his watch. It wasn't yet eight o'clock. They had been on the road since the early hours, so that he would not be too late upon his way. The abbot had calculated that it would take him four hours to walk the 16 kilometres to the first pilgrim hostel at Porino, and had warned him that latecomers could not be sure of a bed. He decided to adopt a firm stride. It lasted for 20 yards or so, before he had to stop to readjust his footwear. His brand new, high-tech, waterproof, breathable hiking shoes were rubbing at the back of each foot. He tried taking the pressure off by walking on the soles of his feet, but about halfway over the bridge, he knew that he was in trouble. The weight of his backpack was aggravating the situation. He was sweating profusely. With some difficulty, he slid the backpack to the ground against a section of the bridge where the diamond-shaped metal trellis gave way to a solid column, and he stooped to take off his shoes. It came to him with absolute certainty that he was not even going to make the first day's walk in that footwear and bearing such a ponderous weight. He opened the bag and pulled out a pair of old comfortable sandals that he had worn while exploring Santa Rem with Frade Chico. The relief as he slipped his feet into them was instant. Next, he addressed the problem of his backpack. Emptying everything onto the ground, he began to make two piles, one of essentials that he would take with him and the other of superfluous items that he would leave behind. There was a liberating feeling associated with the task, and the reject pile grew as he became ever more ruthless. The gimmicky items from the hiking shop, subject of so much agonising deliberation, were dispatched to the reject pile without a second thought. Suddenly, he was brought up, however, in an agony of indecision. He held in both hands the heavy leather satchel that contained his Bible and breviary. An internal argument began to rage. If he had truly suspended his faith, then these books had no place on the journey. On the other hand, to leave them would be sacrilegious, especially if the sign he saw came and his faith was restored. From a practical point of view, the weight of the books would mean a lot of additional hardship. Indeed, it could put his quest at risk. He looked up for inspiration and was fixated by what he saw. There, in clear blue writing on the iron supporting column of the bridge, just inches away, he read, Mark 0608. His heart pounded and he found himself in so much agitation that he struggled to open the satchel's buckled fastener. When he did, finally prize the leather strap free, he removed the Bible and breathlessly flicked through the pages to locate the passage. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts. The priest knelt staring at the page for a moment, and then, in a daze, he carefully placed the Bible back into the satchel. His hands were steady now, as he secured the strap. Next, he swept the two piles of his belongings into one heap and stuffed the lot back into the backpack. From the inner pocket, he removed his passport and a notepad with a pen tucked into the spiral binding. He quickly scribbled a note and trapped it under a strap on top of the backpack in such a way that it would be clearly seen. Then, with a lightened back and a lightened heart, 
he strode onward, carrying nothing but the heavy leather satchel slung securely over one shoulder. He smiled at a sparrow that was eyeing his approach nervously from its perch upon the handrail ahead. Hello, friend bird. Any idea where I can get myself a staff? The sparrow flung itself off the bridge, dropped towards the water to gather speed and then rose, shooting like a bullet to the far bank of the river, where it disappeared from sight into the foliage of a tree. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Valenza, Portugal The vagabundo knew, from a wisdom born of long, hard experience, that the old square in front of the cathedral in Tui was his best bet for begging a few coins. Therefore, he wasted no time in Valenza. If he got to Tui early enough, there was a high probability that he'd find some giddies still loitering around taking photographs of the old building and readjusting their backpacks before tackling the next leg of the Camino. The sun was growing in power as it rose ever higher in a cloudless azure sky, and he rearranged his ragged shirt to protect his shoulders from its glare. His progress was slow. Yesterday, the sole of his left shoe had finally reached a stage where no amount of ingenuity would hold it in place, so the vagabundo was forced to walk with a semi-shuffle. As he approached the bridge over the Mino, it dawned on him that there was a distinct lack of peregrinos ahead or behind. At this time of year, that was unusual. He saw it as soon as he had mounted the bridge. At first he thought it was another tramp, using the place as a begging point. He himself often adapted the strategy of occupying confined areas. It was surprising how many people would go to the trouble of crossing the road to avoid a beggar, but passers-by on the narrow walkway would have no choice but to run the gauntlet. As he drew nearer, however, he recognised the backpack for what it was. He was mystified. On the long, narrow pedestrian path over the bridge, there was nowhere a person could be hidden from view. When he came to a halt in front of the backpack, he eyed it appraisingly. It was huge. It also seemed brand new and expensive. It was then that he noticed the note on top. He plucked it carefully from under the strap and unfolded it. His mother tongue was Spanish, and he knew enough Portuguese to figure out most writing in that language. This, however, he recognised as English, a language in which he could command little more than the few words necessary to beg a coin from a tourist. Tucking the note back into its place, he peered through the diagonal lattice of metalwork that separated the pedestrian walkway from the main bridge, where a few cars were trundling across. There was nobody on foot. Not that he had expected to see anyone. The gaps in the ironwork were large enough to climb through, and he did so, crossing the road and climbing through the trellis on the far side onto the matching walkway there. Still there was nobody in sight. Returning to the abandoned backpack, he stepped to the bridge's safety rail and stared down into the river below. The water was running fast, swirling around one of the structure's massive supporting columns directly beneath him, as it flowed steadily towards the sea. Making his way once more to the walkway on the far side of the bridge, the vagabundo's gaze swept over the vast expanse of water and along the river banks on both sides, but there was no sign of a body. Caught in the main current, it could be carried for miles, he reasoned. Returning once more to the backpack, he carefully removed the note again and studied it, saying the foreign words out loud as if hearing them might prize open their meaning. As it happened, two words did leap out. Pete. 
No, in English he recalled the E was pronounced like the Spanish I and the I more like the Spanish E. Keep it. This was a phrase that he was familiar with. Recently, when he had offered to return a coin that had fallen by accident beside the smaller coin a Giri had meant to give him, the man had been too embarrassed to take it in front of the girl he was trying to impress with his display of charity. Keep it, the man had said, repeating the phrase several times and making the meaning clear with a shake of his head and an upheld hand. The vagabundo's first instinct was to open the bag there and then to see what riches it might hold. However, he knew that he could be mistaken in his English translation, and even if not, his claim could be usurped by someone else happening upon the scene. The rights of tramps were, experience had taught him, easily trampled upon. With some effort he hoisted the backpack onto his shoulders and took a step forward before an idea struck him. He returned to the rail and looked down into the water again. Crossing himself, he muttered what he hoped was an appropriate prayer for the poor soul who had seen fit to shed the backpack and his mortal coil. Whatever your troubles, may you be at peace now, he concluded. Then, turning towards Spain, on the opposite side of the river, he limped onward, trying to look like a peregrino worthy of such a bag. Ahead to the right, he kept his eyes fixed on the steep hill of Tui, with its cathedral on top, and began to say a prayer of thanks to Santiago.